Welcome to the Self-Renewal Podcast. This is your host, Sam Sager. Super excited to share this conversation with Johnny Miller. Johnny's a former startup founder, turned meditation teacher, and breathwork facilitator, among many other things. He hosts the popular podcast, Curious Humans, and runs a course called Nervous System Mastery, which we'll talk a lot about today. We also cover breathwork, resiliency, reactivity, nervous system co-regulation, the power of your environment, and so much more. So let's jump in. Johnny, welcome. Super excited for this conversation. How are you doing today? It's great to be here, Sam. Thank you. Um, I'm I'm really good. There is uh, rain outside and it's kind of refreshing right now. So I'm feeling grounded and just curious to see where this goes. Wonderful. Yes. Well, we have a lot of terrain to cover. I have an endless list of, of questions I'm excited to chat with you about from your podcast to your nervous system mastery course, which had a huge impact on my life. And so really excited to compare notes and, and hear your thoughts on that. I wanted to start, my, my sense of you is you're someone that really loves to explore frontiers and look at new stuff and go down mm. rabbit holes and non-mainstream topics. I'm curious if that's true. And then if that's something that's always been the case or is more emergent. <laughs> well, thank you for that, firstly. Um, and yes, I think that's definitely true. And I think that probably has always been true to some degree. Um, I think when I was when I was younger, that definitely came out through a kind of pursuing adventure through travel. Um, I had a travel startup for five years in my early 20s. And yeah, I just love, I guess, following, following my curiosity if, if I'm able to and finding situations that, that enable that. And ideally, if I'm being paid for that, that's even better. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think the last kind of five, five or six years have been that kind of sense of curiosity or drive has been more um, like inwardly focused, I'd say, and kind of more um, introspective curiosity. Um, but yeah, I think it's always been true. I, and, and, and I, I mean, I started a podcast to explore curiosity for the sake of itself and, you know, exploring the, the value of it in terms of creativity and being the antidote to depression. And, mm. um, it was the, yeah, it's, it's definitely something that's been alive for me for a long time. Nice. What are some of the weirdest rabbit holes you've gone down? <laughs> um, I mean, just like sometimes binging on Wikipedia articles <laughs> for no good reason. Um, I think, let's see, the last last few years, um, look, doing a deep dive research into like the effects of dark rooms and kind of what is it, what is the effect of being in total darkness for ten days on um, on the nervous system and uh, rabbit holes into free diving and spear fishing things like that. Um, what other rabbit holes come to mind? Uh, that's all that comes to mind for now. Um, if any, if anything else comes up, I'll, I'll let you know. Yeah, I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll end up covering it. The dark room one is super interesting to me. I mean, I, I go down plenty of rabbit holes myself, but I have to admit the idea of multi-day darkness and that form of sensory deprivation is pretty terrifying to me. What, mm. what was that like as you explored that? Mm. It was, it was a really powerful experience. Um, my, partner and I did 10 days of a silent meditation retreat and on the 10th day I then went into 10 days in a dark room um, so you're not uh, there's, there's no light at all for 10 days and food is kind of um, sent through a double-sided uh, window as such so like the one panel opens they put the food in and then the other panel you kind of take the, you take the food out and 
my experience was uh it was a real roller coaster i'd say there were like days when i had profoundly deep senses of meditation i could almost see like a flashing strobe light in my mind even though there was no light at all and and even just the process of like learning to eat food and wash your teeth and like have an internal map of where the bed is in this like small room was a was a really interesting process um and then coming out of that uh seeing sunrise after 10 days of of no light um with with kelly my partner and it was almost like on a on like a like a light microdose like the colors were just so vibrant and so intense and there was so much beauty and so much gratitude as well for like wow uh, i like i'm so grateful that i can see um and yeah and there were some pretty profound kind of personal realizations as well around kind of the work that i was doing and my part and i was like learning to write in the darkness so i used like a wow. ruler and um my pen kind of hit the ruler up and down and i had no idea if if you know it'd be if it would be legible on the other side um yeah but yeah it was a really interesting experience and my my wife kelly did five days afterwards and um i proposed to her after that um kind of as a partly as a result of some of the realizations that had come through in the meditation for both of us so it was a really it was a really powerful kind of two or three weeks yeah it seems like it it uh, it reminds me a bit of the first time i did an extended fast and mm -hmm. the absence of the the thing just changes your relationship with it but it, mm. you know darkness just for whatever reason seems more intense to me is there anything like that that you're thinking about doing in the future or other forms that you're exploring mm. yeah um I've been following the work of Bill Plotkin for a number of years now, and uh, he runs these um, kind of wilderness vision vision quests that involve four or five days of fasting um, with like two to three weeks in the wilderness. And I, I did a, a vision quest a few years ago in Nepal, but I'd love to do an experience through Animas, which is Bill's organization. Um, I've become particularly interested, like I think one of the rabbit holes that I, I've gone down is uh, this idea of, of like wilderness rites of passage and what are the the modalities or the, the skills that enable these deeper insights or these deeper kind of states of revelation, which many indigenous cultures and tribes around the world have, you know, still practice, um, but they've kind of been lost in in our culture. So that's something that I'm looking forward to doing in the next six to 12 months, I'd say. Yeah, well, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I followed Bill's work a bit, and it seems like his mm. his quests and journeys are really powerful. Mm -hmm. What do you think it is about getting out into the wilderness that creates an environment that is so conducive for that kind of experience? Mm. Great question. Um, I actually just replied to a tweet of yours, I think. Uh, you mentioned that uh, the effect of nature on, um, on, on, on your daughter. Or, or, yeah yeah on your daughter was just really obvious and profound and i think that um i mean from the perspective of the nervous system nature is an amazing co-regulator like the japanese have this word for forest bathing and for me being in the ocean is just it's so profoundly opening and relaxing um and yeah it's i mean it's it's a great question um i i think in many ways there's a there's a quote that i like that modern culture is just three days deep and i think that there is something about like if you go on a camping trip or you go on an adventure that something shifts or something falls away after kind of two to three days in the wild and for me there's this kind of like 
retuning in and a sense of reconnection into a slightly slower pace um, and just more. Um, I, I've been reading. There's a book called the <clears throat> The Lion Tracker's Guide to Life by this guy called Boyd Vardy, and uh, he talks about it in terms of the the trackers kind of tuning into the sense of the animal and and i i think that these these other senses or all of our senses actually just become more heightened and we i think we feel the most alive when we are most in tune to the input coming through our senses and so i think nature is very powerful for amplifying that i love that yeah yeah it's interesting i definitely notice it now more with with our daughter they're so sensitive and you mm. see it and then you realize the same is true for you it's mm. funny your your comment about the three days is making me think about in western culture how we have two-day weekends every single week and so we're always one day away from, from resetting <laughs> and yeah you know we never quite get there that so the power of a, a vacation but yeah it's interesting. Have you always been so attuned to your sensory experience? And is that something that has been a theme in your life? Or is that something that you mm. have had to discover later on? Mm. Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think that kind of ties into your observation about your daughter as well, that I think we all come into the world, I think, a lot more sensitive. And then through various conditioning or experiences in childhood, I think we kind of develop this um, almost like sensory armor or, or this desensitization that I think is in, is in some ways very necessary. I think it's almost like a protective, um, it, it's a it's a protective mechanism. I mean, if you think of like going on a subway in New York City or London, like it's it's so overwhelming that we need to develop this almost like desensitization in order to function and to not get overwhelmed. Um, and so I think, and, and I was certainly one of those people like living in England and being a startup founder, kind of going down that path. And I think that the last, one of the real gifts of the last four or five years, well, it's it's a gift and a curse in some ways, but I think I have become a lot more sensitive and a lot more attuned to my internal state and how the conditions around me influence that. So to give a kind of um, basic example, in the house we've just moved into, we have two great friends, um, two housemates, and uh one of one of the housemates likes to have light on pretty bright in the evening and kelly and i we kind of used to just once the sun goes down we just use candlelight and things like that and having that bright light after sunset is so it's so intense for me <laughs> that it's like <laughs> i almost have to like leave the room or uh <laughs> just or like wear really really strong blue blockers and, and things like that and, and i think that um and i think i've also become much more tuned to other people's mental and emotional states as well um which again sometimes you know in, in the context of a party or social situations it can feel a little bit intense or a little bit overwhelming um but i do appreciate having that kind of greater sensitivity um and it's yeah not something that i'd want to lose again and and i think for, in my own case there was a lot of kind of internal numbing um you know that happened in my childhood due to things that evoked shame and things like that and i think many of us we have these forms of armor that kind of arise um often in our kind of the first 15 20 years of life and for me the work has been almost like peeling back those layers of armor to allow that sensitivity and also that aliveness to arise because i think if we're if we're numb to the the kind of uh, like quote unquote like negative things then we also become numb to 
the the positive things and the joy and the aliveness and the the beauty of life um and and actually kind of coming back to the the, the point around nature i think that one of the gifts of spending extended periods of time in nature is that deeper connection to that sense of of beauty and wonder and an aliveness that is there um and you know most most naturalists if you think of someone like like emerson or thoreau or john muir like their writing is so evocative and so full of life force and i think it's it's no accident that it's because they spent you know long periods of time wandering in nature yeah yeah that makes sense and the the journey you're describing of the numbing it's something i'm very familiar with and mm-hmm. we can chat more about your course later but it really was taking your course that made me realize the amount that i was disembodied mm. and the amount that i wasn't connected i mean you you shared this concept of interoception and i'm embarrassed to admit it literally blew my mind i didn't know it was a thing and it completely <laughs> re- reframed how i viewed my own experience so I, i'd mm. love if you could kind of share what that idea is mm. um that's really cool to hear. Um, thank you for sharing. And, and actually, if I was to kind of, if there was one part of the nervous system mastery course that I'd love to just be shared more wi- more widely, it is this idea of, of interoception. Um, and it, essentially, it, um, intro just means kind of internal, inception is awareness. So it's like internal awareness. And this is something which um, many of us, myself included, for most of my life, we kind of live in our in our heads and in our minds, and we don't realize how much like feedback and data and information is coming through our senses and from our bodies. And so, this um, there's, there's a beautiful quote. I think I, I, I use it in NSM a few times that knowledge is only a rumor until it lives in the muscle. And I love this idea that like, it's great to have these intellectual concepts and ideas, but we don't really, it doesn't really become wisdom until we're able to fully embody them. And so um, something that I'm kind of working on for the second version of NSM and something that I'm researching for myself is like, what are some of the concrete ways to develop a greater sense of interoception? Um, And what are some of the studies that are out there and, and, there's just so many, so many benefits. I mean, I can, I can speak to my own experience going through burnout, a big part of that. And this was also backed up in the, the resilience research that I've done myself, that often burnout is caused because there is a disconnection between um, someone's mental state and their, and their internal awareness. And so they'll just keep pushing through and ignoring the signs coming from their body, whether those signs are like exhaustion or fragility or anger until it gets to a certain breaking point and then they go into what's known as dorsal vagal shutdown and they just collapse and they just they they freeze they break down all hell breaks loose and that's what we kind of um quote unquote call burnout but really there were likely hundreds of kind of micro events leading up to that point that were just ignored due to um insufficient interoceptive capacity yeah, it's fascinating. And I think one of the challenges is certain settings, you get rewarded for that. So I was an athlete mm-hmm. growing up and my wife was an athlete. We talk a lot about how there's this reward for being able to push down mm. anxiety or fear that's bubbling up in big moments. And, mm. you know, in certain business settings, you know, the kind of ability to just overpower what's happening in your body with your mind can be rewarded. Mm. Um, but I think your course did a beautiful job at helping identify the costs of that on one hand and the benefits mm. of you know, shifting towards a more um, connected state to your body. So I'm curious if you could just mm. share 
what are some examples of kind of the benefits that arise when you really connect to some of that internal sensory experiences? Mm. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing that I want to mention is that our, our body's capacity to buffer these intense experiences is actually a remarkable function and kind of gift. And it's essential, like mm. for, particularly when we're growing up, there are times where we experience things that are too intense to feel and process at the time. And so our body is able to like literally store it and buffer it in our nervous system to then be processed later. And that is a is a, an incredible survival strategy. So I don't think that this is like bad in, in any way. Um, it, it only becomes problematic when we buffer so many experiences that we build up what, what I call emotional debt. And that is essentially when our nervous system is almost like full to the brim of the it's almost like like your mac computer like the ram is like <laughs> and so 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 fully used that there's no you know the color wheel starts spinning and the same thing happens with our with our nervous system um and so some of the some of the benefits of uh kind of unpacking this emotional debt and um a lot, and, and cultivating what uh, Joe Hudson, who is a kind of mentor of mine, calls emotional fluidity, which I think is a really important concept. And so the idea is that instead of kind of push, let's say that something happens and I start to feel frustrated, instead of like pushing that down, I just allow myself to feel the frustration and express it. And that kind of charge just gets released. And that's, that's kind of how it should be. Um, and if we, if we lived in a society that was fully accepting of the full emotional spectrum, I think there would be far less of this kind of pushing down and, and repressing of different emotions and, and sensations. Um, and so to speak to some of the, the benefits of that, um, I mean, for me, breathwork has been kind of my primary modality for exploring the emotional debt that I've accumulated over, over the course of my life and having that kind of um, both a safe space in which kind of the full emotional spectrum is welcome um, combined with skilled practitioners or sometimes I'll, I'll do self-guided journeys um, and just just to the, the breathing practice will connect to the subconscious and then the nervous system that you just serves up these past experiences that were kind of stored in the in, in the the limbic brain to then be recompleted and so um like my my body will has had all of these kind of stored incomplete reflexes where it literally relives whatever that experience is the might the may or may not be a story associated but almost always when that experience is completed there is a feeling of deep peace joy connection like sometimes laughter <laughs> and and the the kind of cumulative result of that over probably several hundred journeys at this point has been a much deeper connection to myself and just um access to to honestly like joy and love i feel like my capacity for feeling um alive has just increased exponentially in the last few years and uh i can't think of many benefits that would beat that <laughs> I mean, i'm still on the journey but like um yeah. I've definitely i've definitely come a long way yeah i love that i'm i'm really excited to talk about breath work specifically first just on the emotions front one of the things as i've gone on that journey and you know beginning to go out and explore it i've realized that there's you mentioned earlier there's a lot of shame 
beneath there. There's fear of, of feeling what's there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, discomfort with anger. And I don't know where, maybe in the course, you talk about this concept of clean anger. Mm-hmm. And, and that really resonated with me. And I, I'd love to hear you expand a bit on that. Mm, yes. Yeah. So um, I, I kind of touch on the, the shame piece as well. Um, what something that was kind of powerful in my journey was was learning to not be ashamed of the shame itself. So kind of um, feeling the sensations, almost like these, like for me, it was like this swampy sensation in my hips and in my pelvis, and this like collapse. And shame is also very associated with the with the dorsal shutdown, which is when we just kind of like collapse into a freeze response. Um, and so disassociating what, what's known in the literature as like secondary emotional responses. So for some people with anger, for example, when anger comes up, um, shame might also arise as well, which kind of shuts them down. And, and so that doesn't allow the anger to move cleanly. Um, and so with this concept of, of clean or, or unclean anger, um, I like to think of like, uh, if you imagine a, a hose pipe and the, the charge of the emotion kind of goes down this hose pipe and if it's kinked in one way let's say someone um, is ashamed of their anger they don't want to feel it then it'll kind of come out one way and they might be passive aggressive towards someone so they don't like express the anger cleanly if it comes out another way they might go into rage and they might blame and shout at someone or you know the usual the stuff that we see in like youtube comments for example <laughs> There's a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of unclean anger a kinked anger that's expressed there um but the crucial point about clean anger is it's it's just expressed. It's not expressed at someone. And that's a really crucial kind of difference. Because if you're, if you're angry at someone, usually there will be some kind of hurt or some kind of consequence. But if you're just like um, punching a pillow or just raging in a breathwork journey or um, wh- whatever the kind of preferred method of anger release is, it's actually an amazing way for to move this charge through you and when anger comes through incredibly cleanly, um, it's it's almost the energy of like of like this determination and commitment and like setting healthy boundaries, um, and this like uh, this this fierceness that is incredibly important to kind of protecting what you care about. Um, but people don't often think about the I guess the positives of anger in that way. Yeah. Because it's it has, you know, unclean anger has caused so much hurt in the world that there is, you know, understandably a lot of hesitation towards it. Um, but I think that, rep- you know, repressing it either way is is ultimately just, it's like adding more emotional debt to the collective pile. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think in my own life, the shame and anger, they're kind of interconnected. I have a mentor that describes shame as a defining part of it is this feeling that it's not safe to be a certain way. Mm-hmm. And I think that with anger, that really comes in where, you know, in childhood or other times we get feedback that it's not safe to, to mm-hmm. be angry. And we internalize that. Mm-hmm. I, I remember a, a breathwork journey I was doing virtually and the facilitator was trying to get me to express verbally and into like a pillow. Mm-hmm. The, the, it's super uncomfortable made, at first, it was, isn't it? It was, so, it was not only so uncomfortable, but like the it was like a, a dog whimpering when I first uh-huh. made noise. Like it was just there was like, and finally I I really channeled it, and it felt yeah. it felt fantastic. Like mm. anger felt fantastic to feel mm. fully, which mm. was so counterintuitive. Mm. I actually guided a client yesterday through a uh, through anger in a in a breathwork journey, and we kind of will sometimes use arm, arm compressions, which can kind of help that force of like pushing away. And it was similar; like initially, there was almost this like mute like whimper, 
and over time it built up to like the roar of a of a lion <laughs> yeah and it was really cool to really cool to witness yeah it feels powerful well i'd love to jump into the breath work i know you have a background with meditation and, and you are a meditation instructor i'd love to hear about how did you first uncover breath work and what mm. about it pulled you in and it, it seems like it's become the defining modality that you're really using as a foundation for all of your work mm. Yeah. So I think um, there were a couple of doorways. I, I had a amazing meditation mentor for a few years called Michael King. And he shared uh, pranayama practices with me for kind of as part of the meditation practice. And he used the analogy of um, if you if you want to meditate uh, in, in the same, I think it's a quote attributed to Lincoln, but it's like, if you want to cut down a tree spent and you have six hours, spend the first four hours sharpening the axe. And so breath work, particularly pranayama practices, I think are very effective at leveraging these biological levers that calm us down and activate the parasympathetic nervous system to the point where meditation becomes kind of conducive and you almost like want to meditate. And so I'd say that was my first kind of entry point into realizing the power of the breath as this kind of lever for the autonomic nervous system. And then the the breathwork, kind of more um, conscious connected breathing that I've now become trained in and fascinated by, that journey began, I think, about four and a half years ago at this point, where um, I was doing a freediving training. And my freediving teacher just mentioned that he was a breathwork facilitator and he kind of guided me through this 90-minute journey and I had one of the most, just an incredibly profound experience that was comparable to taking psychedelics. And I kind of, I came out of that and I was like, whoa, like what the, what the hell just happened? <laughs> and, and that, I mean, that then I think the curiosity impulse kicked in and I just wanted to dive deep down that rabbit hole. And I, I came across a practitioner by the name of Edward Dangerfield, who had just arrived in Bali from Canada and he had a, a powerful story. He was trapped in an avalanche and breathwork allowed him to kind of go from a, a point where he was addicted, alcoholic and, and borderline suicidal to like a thriving human being. And the modality of breathwork that he is kind of, I, I think, innovating and creating is is a combination of bodywork practices, nerve flossing and reading the breath i think this is what's so fascinating and, and he's developed a, a new modality called breath repatterning that involves lying someone down dropping them into breath using this kind of connected breathing practice that I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with and then as a practitioner we will look at how their breath is look at the movement of the, the three diaphragms the pelvis the, the main diaphragm and the, and the throat and then provide facilitations to create more ease and flow in that breath pattern and what we're finding is that different breath patterns are correlated to different emotional responses. So let's say um, someone is struggles with uh, shame, for shame and grief are commonly kind of held in the in the pelvis and the hips. So if someone's breath isn't moving down into the into the lower belly and the pelvis, there's a good chance that there's some kind of um, unexpressed emotion there. And so as a facilitator, our role is to create safety and gently guide and titrate the breath down into that space to the point where they feel comfortable feeling into whatever whatever hurt or whatever kind of 
lowercase or, or uppercase t trauma is is stored there and so it's it's really been i mean of all the rabbit holes i think i've gone down in the last few years this this breath repatterning has been the deepest <laughs> and it continues to um just blow my mind in in many ways yeah no i i've i've done done a bit of it myself and i think when you're talking about the the patterns that's really fascinating i i when i was first doing it I was breathing very deeply into my belly. You know, everybody mm. says, do you breathe into your belly? So I had trained myself to do that, but I wasn't breathing at all into my chest. Mm-hmm. Um, and as soon as I did, it opened up like a flood of emotions. Mm. And so that was fascinating to me to see how the breath pattern is connected to all these other pieces. Mm-hmm. Was Just out of curiosity, was that connected to um, your relationship with anger, just out of interest? With I think it had to do with, fear of feeling emotion. So fear, mm-hmm. fear of feeling emotion, fear of feeling mm-hmm. anger and an almost a way of controlling, right? Like not, mm-hmm. not having the range to go there because you're not letting yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so once you open that door, you know, a lot of things flood out, but, uh, mm-hmm. at least that's the story I'm telling. I, <laughs> you probably have a more, uh, more insightful perspective on, on what, um, what that pattern represents. No, I think that's spot on. Um, and it's, it's really common. Um, and, and often we hold uh, like the area around the the middle diaphragm under the rib cage is kind of known as the fear belt among practitioners. Mm-hmm. And often, if breath isn't moving past the that middle diaphragm, then there is some kind of fear present. And if mm-hmm. like once that fear is fully felt and leaned into, then usually a, like a huge amount more volume of breath is unlocked in the the upper part of the rib cage in the chest, which then corresponds to so much more energy and life force um in life uh which is i i think what also why i'm so passionate about this is because like the way that we breathe kind of co- correlates very strongly with the way that we show up in life and if we're throttling our breath by say only breathing into the belly then we're throttling our capacity to express and our, and our energy and and all these other things yeah i i'll i'll extend that in that i was trying to control my breath and I realized after I was trying to control so much in my life, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, yeah. you're trying to really do that. I think this is a perfect lead yeah. into you know a topic that we've we've kind of traded notes and 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 nerded out on about of this idea of non doing or trying mm-hmm. to be you know less effortful or not over efforting. So mm-hmm. I'd love to hear a bit about how kind of you discovered those ideas and and where they're showing up in your life. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so where to begin with that and this is this is such a great segue from the from the breath as well um when i first was breathed by by ed my mentor he kind of diagnosed me with the the classic he called it like the overachiever breathing pattern which is like huge big voluminous inhale kind of like (gasps) and then usually some kind of holding in the throat and so my exhale was almost like this darth vader like kind of sound (laughs) and it is like you say kind of symptomatic of like controlling and gripping and and holding on to to life which was then showing up in the rest of my life in in all kinds of ways um i think the the thing that comes to mind right now is again my meditation mentor michael king uh, who i've done a, a podcast episode with as well um he talked about this idea of like applying conscious effort such that your life can be effortless so to his mind that was that was like committing to and consciously setting aside 30 minutes in the morning to meditate 
so that the rest of your day can be easeful and effortless. Um, and I think this is this has been a journey that I've been on really for the last kind of seven or eight years, I think. And I still catch myself um, gripping in various ways or uh, a friend, Michael Ashcroft, calls it grinding and like over-efforting and pushing too hard. And it is this constant kind of, for me, it's like a process of remembering and forgetting. And and the moments when I'm when I am in this kind of like effortless ease and doing and flow, it feels so amazing. And I'm more creative and productive. And you know, I I, I get further um, towards whatever my desires and goals are than if I'm actually struggling and pushing. But it is this deeply ingrained kind of cultural conditioning. And I think it comes from school when you're kind of rewarded for like struggling and striving and and like basically getting yourself to burnout, <laughs> which is a very it's a very deeply ingrained pattern to begin to to begin to undo. But what's what's your what's your kind of take on this and, and how have you been exploring it in your life? Yeah. Well, I think what you're describing is the most frustrating part where Every time I find a way to embrace it, it goes great and it works wonderfully. And then I, for some reason, need to continue to relearn the lesson in all these different domains. Right. <laughs> uh, so I think it's it's somewhere deep ingrained where we're you know we're we're taught that we have to struggle or yeah. um, you know I think I, I I've kind of come to try to apply it as many places as possible. I mean the one that's most core to my my day-to-day is just with exercise mm-hmm. um which is one of the more effortful activities but yet there's a way of embracing it where you're creating the conditions to just move throughout the day or where mm-hmm. the desire to exercise is coming from within and it's not a forceful tension there's no battle there i think everybody thinks of exercise mm-hmm. as a battle mm-hmm. um and it doesn't have to be i mm-hmm. think one of the best examples i you have this tweet around sleep and i think mm-hmm. I, I love it so much because you can't argue with like you can argue with this approach in many settings like someone can fight me on whether it's true in exercise <laughs> nobody can fight you whether it's true on sleep so uh-huh. I, I could read it but do you could you just share um kind of that concept yeah um so i actually want to i want to kind of get the wording right for myself so it was yeah this this feels like an important insight we do not do sleep instead we create the conditions for sleep to emerge in the nervous system and the same applies to creativity, love, etc. So the proper role of the mind is to create the conditions for the emergence of our desired state. And creating the conditions for the emergence of our desired state, which uh, kind of coming back to my mentor, Michael, it's like um, creating the conditions by, say, say, kind of allowing through meditating and then allowing the rest of the day to be to be easeful. Um, and I think about this. For me, it's probably most obvious in breathwork where I've had the most profound realizations, breakthroughs, releases when I've stopped trying to have them, if that makes sense. Like my my desire, like that I went through this phase where I was like trying so hard to let go, <laughs> which sounds ridiculous. And at one point, I remember during this specific moment in this this song, I like let go of the idea of trying to let go. And there was this huge sense of like surrender and release and expansiveness. And I think that's really kind of what it comes down to. And, it, and this is also very tied um, kind of coming back to this idea of interoception. Like it's really about listening to our bodies and, and trusting in the innate wisdom of our nervous systems and of, and of our bodies to, 
to know what is the right thing to do. And the more tuned in, the, the greater our sense of interception and the more our capacity to listen, the more we can just allow that to unfold as opposed to what, what most of us do is like the mind has an idea and then it's like, I will execute on this. <laughs> and it's like, and that's usually where just things become tough and, and challenging and we just get stuck basically. Um, but it's yeah. such a, it is such a dance between like having, for me at least, it's like having a kind of clear intention or desire and, and tuning into the impulse of that but then like letting go of how it actually happens. Um, that's like the, the paradox, I guess. Yeah. You are, you're speaking of me when you describe that, uh, the, the best example, I had a, a therapist describe me as a man of purpose and I was like, Oh yeah, that's awesome. And I didn't mm. realize for a while he was actually saying it in, as a pejorative term of like, you are so purposeful that you're uh -huh. locking yourself in and you're following it and you've uh -huh. cut off all sense of possibility. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, it just mm -hmm. kind of, blew my mind open of like, oh, what are the costs of trying to mentally kind of set and control and then execute? Yeah. Um, one thing that, that I wanted to chat with you about that feels like maybe related is this idea of habit formation. Mm -hmm. And you had an interesting kind of description of it from a nervous system perspective, but I just see so many people that are grinding, trying to set up habits where they're mm. really trying to force themselves to, mm. to embrace this stuff. So I'm curious how you think habit formation or it relates to all this yeah so um i mean from the perspective of the nervous system <clears throat> i'm sure listeners have heard of the concept of neuroplasticity which is kind of um neurons that wire together fire together so the more that we repeat certain actions the more they just become hardwired into into our day-to-day -day behavior um but let's say that there is a i don't know what's a good example let's say someone wants to create the habit of running for example um in, instead of say like i don't know setting an alarm at 6 a.m and like forcing yourself to get out of bed and like just like pushing through whatever resistance and and pain an alternative approach that hopefully kind of builds in some of the principles we've been talking about might be to say um firstly like tune into the the impulse and the desire behind why you want to kind of make that change. Um, so let's say it is running, like maybe there's a deep desire to feel more, to feel stronger, to feel fitter, to feel more alive. Um, and like really tuning into that impulse to, to the point where that desire gets so strong that the next morning you don't even need to set an alarm, but you just get out of bed. You're like, I'm so excited to go running this morning. And, and if you're not excited, then that's, then the question is like, okay, well, like what, where's the conflict here? Like part of me wants to run, but then part of me doesn't want to get out of bed. So like what, what's the, con what's going on there and unpack that. Um, and then secondly, there's kind of coming back to like creating the conditions for the emergence of the behaviors that we want. You could quite easily kind of design your, your bedroom, say, or your environment where there is less friction to you waking up. And then going for runs. So you might put your, I think James Clear talks about like putting your trainers by the side of your bed so that um, when you get up, like your, your running stuff's already there and you practically like roll into it and then you just walk out the door half sleepy and then it, it's just natural. So that becomes the, like the path of least resistance. Um, and so I think the more, um, there's maybe two sides of it. One side is like increasing the intensity of the des desire and the impulse to do the thing. 
And the second is then removing any potential friction or mental conflict that might arise and might get in the way of whatever the desired habit is. Um, and then maybe a third one is is like letting it be easy and effortless in the beginning and kind of committing like maybe it's like you run for 500 meters or something <laughs> that's all you commit to and then if after 500 meters you spontaneously think okay i feel good i'm going to keep going that's great but you're not going to beat yourself up if you you know you only run a mile or whatever and then you're like oh shit i said i was going to run 10 miles today <laughs> so I, th I think that's a piece and i'm sure you have a lot of insight um kind of from the exercise point of view as well Oh, I could literally talk to you about this one example <laughs> for hours. So I, uh, I will, I will restrain myself. It's, uh, but it, it, it totally aligns with everything in terms of focusing on the motivation. But then, mm -hmm. you know, just finding the piece to make it enjoyable. Like if mm -hmm. you can even just enjoy it for ten minutes, that's far more sustainable, and that will start to snowball and compound. Mm. I, I, I'd actually, I'd love to add one more thing to that. Um, yeah. I love. Um, there's a guy called Aaron Alexander whose podcast I, I really like, and he talks about the value of play. And how ways that you can bring play into all kinds of movement practices. So, like, I went for a run the other day, but it was more of like I was like running backwards and sideways and kind of exploring different movement patterns. And it was it was like an interesting exploration for me, as opposed to like a robotic Johnny execute run <laughs> kind of program. And that opened a lot up for me as well. And it was just like a way to make it more enjoyable, and I think also probably more beneficial in the long run as well. That's a, a yeah, beautiful example. I think a, a parallel is with sports where I know people that could never run for one mile. They'd just get bored or they would hate it. And yet they can go play tennis mm -hmm. or basketball for two hours and they end up mm -hmm. running, you know, three, four miles while doing it. And it just feels like play to them. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that that's super powerful. You just mentioned the kind of the environment and, and how that plays a role. I was really intrigued during the, your course about kind of the, some of the components related to how you tailor an environment for the, the nervous system. Mm -hmm. What can you share related to that and how you think about that in your own life? Mm. Yeah, this is something that I'm, I'm honestly still exploring for myself, but I think the basic, um, the basic insight is that we have different like modes of being or different states, different desired states, let's say. So one desired state might be feeling creative and in flow and kind of having conversations like this. Another state might be focused analytical work. Another state might be deep rest and relaxation. Another state might be uh, being social and kind of connecting with, with loved ones and friends. And because of what we were, you know, what we were talking earlier in terms of how we are always co-regulating with our environment, you can design environments in certain ways that those states will be more or less conducive. Um, so one, one example that's been documented in the literature is this idea of the cathedral effect, which shows that if um, knowledge workers have kind of high vaulted ceilings above them, there will be a tendency to be able to think more creatively, more abstractly, to kind of piece new ideas together. And if the the ceiling is much lower, kind of let's say just above their heads, then that is more conducive to like focused, detail-oriented, like analytical left brain, left brain type work. Um, so that's that's one example. And then another might be um, let's say kind of creating a sleep sanctuary in your bedroom where after let's say the sun sets, 
um, there are certain conditions in your bedroom that make sleep very conducive. And some examples might be getting the temperature to a kind of slightly lower than usual or having having candlelight, um, having plants in there for air quality and, and, all, and all these things. And that will then, or maybe, maybe uh, some incense burning or relaxing music on Spotify. Like there's all these ways that you can kind of send these um inputs through the sensory through the nervous system to then facilitate that state and if you want to if you want to kind of engineer an environment for social connection maybe there's um there's colors there's kind of pictures on the wall there's like comfy sofas for people to to connect and allow the the ventral vagal system to come online and for people to feel safe and from there to kind of go into a mode of of human connection um and so i think it's almost like kind of getting clear on what is the what is the state that I would like to be in right now and then how can I and and we've Kelly and I have thought about um you know one day buying a house and converting it into this kind of um this space where there are very different rooms that are kind of specifically designed for certain purposes so one for reading one for rest and relaxation and sleep one for creative output and podcasting and painting and and these things and I think that um there have been studies on uh, children with autism who I think are particularly sensitive and even subtle like changes in the color or the way that furniture might have rounded edges or sharp edges makes a difference to how they will then interact. And so, so I think it's just speaking to this idea that we are actually deeply sensitive and attuned to our environments, whether or not we're consciously aware of it. Yeah. Oh, that, that, that really resonates. I think that's actually a great lead into your course because one of the biggest takeaways that, that I took from it was you're helping people build the capacity to recognize the sensitivity you have, to have contact mm. with how our environment, other people, different activities impact our mm. nervous systems. And mm. then you are kind of giving them tools that can help nudge them in certain directions. And so mm. I, I'd love to hear just a bit of the history about where the course came from, mm. how, how the first cohort went and, and where you're taking it. I know it's a, a big question, mm. but run with it however you'd like. Yeah, sure. Sure. Thank you. Um, so the course, I'm co-regulating with our adopted puppy right now. She's just down here. Amazing. <laughs> um, the course came from, uh, I was... I was running a series of uh, masterclasses that came from this emotional resilience and leadership report that I co-authored with um, with a guy called Jan Chipchase. And these were kind of three-day workshops um, with execs, CEOs, leaders, and these types of people. And the, the kind of the reason they were there was to kind of learn about how to avoid burnout and how to kind of be more in tune with, with themselves and build resilience. And one of the most kind of effective or, or the one of the exercises that really resonated was just having simple breathing practices to upregulate and downregulate their nervous systems. They were like, wow, I didn't realize that I could just um, decide to feel calmer and do a few rounds of alternate nostril breathing or view harm or whatever it is, and then feel, feel calm. It's like, it's like a superpower because um, they're no longer at the mercy of whatever their, whatever their body is doing. And so I think that was like a bit of a kind of aha moment. Um, And then at the same time, I was studying with Ed and learning about polyvagal theory and kind of learning from him all of the research and and ideas that he'd kind of accumulated. 
and things just started connections started forming in my mind around like i i'm so fascinated by this i just want to begin sharing it what what is a way that makes sense to share this kind of under one roof under one program and the idea for nervous system mastery kind of evolved from from there and and i think in, in terms of the the first cohort which you were a part of um in some ways that felt like i was just <laughs> like vomiting information that was useful about the nervous system into kind of a five-week thing um and i'm really glad that it was helpful for i think it was helpful for many people um and i got a lot of great feedback but what i've been trying to do and it's taken me the better part of a year to actually like rework the curriculum is both make it more engaging with more with more examples more stories but but actually have a more scaffolded approach and so i I think the the foundation of nervous system mastery is as you were speaking to earlier this idea of interoception like if we're not able to feel and sense and track sensations in our body then then the protocols the practices everything else is almost like redundant because you're not gonna be attuned enough to know when to use these self-regulation practices um and and the, what's kind of emerged in and actually in recent months has been this framework that I'm calling rise out of reactivity. And rise stands for the R is reactivity, the I is interoception, the S is self-regulation. So this is like let's say we're triggered, we're hijacked, we're stressed. How do we you know, come back to baseline? And then the E is emotional mastery, which is uh, like the clean anger example is is a good one. So like how do we allow these emotions to to come through us without being hijacked by them and it and it really is a kind of scaffolded approach because you can't you can't go into emotional mastery if you don't have the pillars of interoception and you're also unable to self-regulate and be in a place of like groundedness and safety in order to then let the emotion flow through so what is what is now unfolding and what i'm, I'm actually in the midst of kind of doing the finishing touches on on this at the moment um is this kind of progressive approach where there are practices for cultivating interoception for um, self-regulating and kind of calming down if we're stressed if we're triggered if we're over-efforting in different ways and then building up to this idea of emotional mastery which is um, giving people invitations to uh, feel and express these emotions as they're arising kind of in safe contexts and and, and safe containers um, so that's kind of the the way that I'm seeing it evolve, and, and I think that um, I, I think about the quote from Viktor Frankl. Quite, this actually wasn't said exactly by Viktor Frankl. It's kind of his work paraphrased, but it's this idea that in between stimulus and response there is a space, and in that space lies our freedom. And I think that this in the interoception, the self regulation, the emotional fluidity, they com- together help to increase this space, this like greater sense of agency when we are hijacked, when we're triggered, when we're kind of falling into these like default patterns. And the more the the, the larger that space, the more freedom we have in our life and the more agency we have and the more sovereignty we have. And I think that's ultimately what I'm excited to share and to guide people through. Yeah. It, well, just to say it, it was very, very powerful in my life. And we can we can chat about a few examples if you want. I think what's interesting, just to kind of reflect back on my own experience with what you took us through, it, I, I experienced that exact thing, right? Where you had the space increase and it was this newfound 
sense of excitement related to that. And then what was interesting was once I had experienced that and I had trust in it, it also at times collapsed in that I felt like I could just react naturally without needing to control and worry about what would happen. So I'm curious if you've seen that with others and if that's something that kind of is, is, is almost like an intentional benefit where once you know that the space is larger, you also have more trust where it can then, you can trust yourself to let it collapse at times. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, what would I, th- um, coming back to my journey, I think I remember when there was a turning point where I think I got into a, an argument with, um, with my partner at the time. And I realized that I was like excited to then go into that trigger. Like I was grateful that, that I'd been triggered and that I was now in a state of like anger and shame because I knew I could then go into breath work and see what was like underneath that. And like, presumably, um, and, and it, I then did have kind of a powerful experience on the other side of that. And so, yeah, I, I think these practices really do, um, both increase increase that space and also our sense of like self-compassion that I, I like to think of the the emotional the half-life of an emotional response so let's say when someone comes into this work um they might if someone says something to them they might be angry for like two days because of some comment that someone made <laughs> about them and uh, you know hopefully after engaging with with some interoceptive practice with like learning some tools for self-regulation maybe that half-life goes from being two days to like two hours and then in you know as as time evolves maybe it's down from two hours to like 10 minutes and like that's that's a huge kind of saving of someone's life force energy <laughs> if you know you can instead of being like in this state of like oh like screw this person screw the world whatever it is like you can notice that and recognize it and then bring yourself down into a state of groundedness or better yet just like feel and express whatever the 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 charge is there in in a healthy way um and 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 for me i think that like i would love to I'd love to live in a community and in a, in a world where that is almost commonplace, where there is that level of kind of internal self-awareness that everyone has such that it then allows for easeful communication and loving communication. Um, and yeah, I think that's what I'm, that's what I'm really excited for. Does that answer your question? I might've gone off on a tangent. No, yeah, absolutely. It, it sounds like the course is evolving in some really exciting directions. Is the, is the core of some of the, practices still some of those simple breath work techniques that you introduced us to yeah yeah so the um the cultivating calm kind of the self-regulation uh protocols are all there i've actually added to the the, the list of protocols <laughs> you'll be pleased to hear um I'm, I'm happy to to share the updated version with you as well um yeah and, and basically giving people a buffet of different ways to up and down regulate um as the situation requires I think, like you said earlier, in terms of actually experiencing your own body, I think I was intrigued by the ideas. And then you took us through some of the the breathing, you know, the alternate nostril one or the Vuham. And I was like, oh, damn, I can feel, like, I can feel things changing. I mean, I, I remember the Vuham and just the, both the noise, but also the, like, the way in which the nitric oxide just mm-hmm. changed the internal chemistry. Mm. Um, and you can actually feel that different mm-hmm. state. Um, totally totally so it's yeah it's really powerful stuff to have such a simple intervention that can have such a profound impact in such a short time 
Yeah, absolutely. It, it's amazing. And and for myself as a freediver as well, like I can literally measure the difference between doing like a, a Vuham practice for less than two minutes. And then my dive is like twice as deep, <laughs> which wow. is, is insane just because it does have that um, immediate effect on the parasympathetic system. Yeah. So as we kind of come to the, the end of our time, I'm curious, what would you, what would you encourage people to do if they've become interested in this, these ideas, what, what, what kind of simple stuff would you give them as, Hey, try this out. Um, mm. what, what are some good entry points for people to start to explore these on their own? Hmm. Yeah. Great question. Um, let me think. And side uh, note, take Johnny's course. <laughs> There's endless rabbit holes. You want to go down all of them, but um, what are some appetizers for people can, can wet, wet their appetite while they wait for the course to launch? Yeah. So I'll, I'll share, I'll share a few things. Um, firstly, feel free to reach out to me directly on, on Twitter um, at Johnny Miller with a, with a one, I guess it'll be in, in the podcast show notes. Um, and then in terms of appetizers, so I'm about to release a, a notion template that I'm calling resilience quarterly. And in that I've, I've listed, um, eight of these kind of down regulation protocols, which you can, um, things like Vuham, alternate nostril breathing, spinal decompression, things which you can try very easily at home. They're all completely safe and, like like you said sam they have a pretty instantaneous um downshifting effect that you can you can really feel and i think that's that's i mean that was kind of what got me into this it was like noticing that huge physiological shift in my body in my nervous system and being like wow this is this is really powerful and and learning to play with these different levers the, another one is um andrew huberman professor andrew huberman calls this optic flow which is like if you um kind of deliberately soften your gaze and almost try and look into the periphery then you'll also notice that that has a slightly less pronounced effect on calming down the nervous system and, and helping you to feel more relaxed it's also why wide horizons also feel really good because you have this like natural optic flow uh, effect um i would in terms of <coughs> resources i I've been really enjoying the book Anchored by Deb Dana, which is a great primer into polyvagal theory, which is um, a kind of very accessible entry point to some of the things I've touched on around like dorsal shutdown, ventral vagal tone, um, sympathetic activation. And it, she just kind of condenses the, the science in a really accessible way. Um, if you're interested in the breathwork side of things, I did a podcast with my mentor, Ed Dangerfield, um, that I can I can share with you, Sam. Which we did a kind of like a nerdy deep dive into the form of breathwork that's developing there. Um, and yeah, and of course, if you're curious about nervous system mastery, uh, the the next cohort is going to be in early November, and applications will be opening very soon. So um, definitely check that out. It's nsmastery.com, um, and feel free to just ask me any questions or curiosities in the meantime. Awesome. Yeah, I, I, and part of preparing for this, I wrote up a quick essay on my experience with it. So, oh, oh um, amazing. Yeah, I'll, I will be, I'll be sharing that kind of in tandem. Um, this is my audio proof that Johnny is, is not aware that I wrote that. I'm in no, no, <laughs> he, he's not, he's not in me to, to pump up nervousism mastery. I appreciate it truly, that. No, it truly had a, a really significant impact on my life. I, cool. I, I joke, I, I like genuinely feel like, if I'm not a different person, I have a different nervous system now wow. than I did when I when I first discovered the course. 
Um, mm, so it's really wow. powerful stuff. So thank you for for putting that together and and sharing mm. it. Um, one final question: I I just am, am fascinated by kind of people's individual evolution and you know this this theme of self renewal. <laughs> the, love the love the dog making their presence known. I'm surprised that that my dogs haven't haven't joined it on the fun. They uh, <laughs> they must be playing downstairs. Um, but where, where I was going with that was I, I'm fascinated by how people's journeys are evolving and, and you seem like someone that is constantly kind of iterating and, and exploring new things. So hmm. I'm curious, is there any place in your life that you're in a particular season of, of self-renewal or you feel yourself evolving or adapting that, that you could share? Mm. Beautiful question. Um, I would say that. I feel like in some ways I've almost been in this like kind of cocooning sense of hibernation in the last like two or three years as I've been learning breath work, exploring these modalities, having these conversations and almost like filling myself up and learning and self-experimenting. And since arriving here in Boulder, Colorado, this, this renewed sense of creativity and this desire to share and to write and to have conversations like this has really, has really come back online. So I'm I'm excited to kind of explore myself through the lens of creation and sharing and I'm sure blocks and challenges and and stories will come up in that process and that's great <laughs> and I think yeah. that that feels like um that feels like the path for me as well and and maybe alongside that I think the the path of um, committed relationship um, with with my partner Kelly. I think that has been, and I'm sure will continue to be a, a real source of like deep um, personal growth. And kind of like she's almost like a mirror for like here are all the ways in which you're you could be showing up more fully, or, or here's here are the triggers that you still have, and you know things like that. And and so I think being on that path with her as well is um, yeah a journey that I hope to be on for the rest of my life. Yeah, it sounds like you've you're creating some conditions for renewal for sure. I uh, well, I'm glad personally that you're you're now in the in the states and not Bali. I, I joke that Bali is like this breathwork capital of the world, but there's all these amazing teachers that are concentrated there, and for the rest yeah. of us that aren't aren't there. So we're we're glad that we've got you uh, stateside, and uh, <laughs> we have kind of practitioners uh, that are kind of sharing because I imagine you're going to do some more breathwork locally and mm-hmm. um, and all of that as well. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I'm c- going to be running, I think, fortnightly circles here in in Boulder um, with with a good friend of ours, and doing some one on one practices as well. And it's it's great to be in your time zone again as well. And I don't have to be up at like five a.m. in the morning to have great conversations. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, this has been amazing, Johnny. Thank you so much for for coming on. Anything else you want to share or point people towards? I know you have your your podcast, which we didn't even get into. That's one of my my favorite podcast to listen to. So curious humans, if, if you've never listened to it, please do check it out. Um, anything else, Johnny, that, that you'd like to share before we, we wrap? Um, no, just, uh, just grateful for this, the invitation and for the thoughtful questions. And I, I really kind of feel a sense of, yeah, resonance and kinship with the approach you're taking too. Um, you, you mentioned before we started talking that it feels like there's, there's many of us, especially on Twitter who are kind of dancing around similar concepts and, and ideas and themes and, um, yeah, I love the the lens that you're bringing to this as well. Thank you, Johnny. I appreciate it. It means a lot coming from you. Thanks for listening. I'll link to Johnny's Twitter profile and course in the show notes and share the article I mentioned where I highlight my experiences taking it. 
If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe. I have some great guests coming up and I'm excited to explore similar themes in different domains. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.